The math is so definitive. There is no spin move around this math. When you realize that just the United States, we're in $32 trillion in debt. We're on the books for $6 trillion a year outflow. Tax receipts are somewhere in the $4 trillions. And our interest payments alone are like $300 billion at all-time lows. And that doesn't even include unfunded liabilities like Social yeah, Security, right. you know, Medicare. And these things are adding... I don't remember I what the numbers were, but it's like 96 last time I checked, 196 trillion, yeah. like altogether. That's, it, that sounds it, about right. It is impossible to escape this situation with, without some sort of massive event. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Hello, friends. Welcome back in to the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. Blessings to each and every one of you. Hope you are all doing fantastic. Josh just finished up at the Bitcoin 2022 conference in Miami, and I, Dan, was relegated to the confines of my home with a one-week-old addition to the family. We are very grateful. Mom and baby are healthy. But I will tell you, this precious bundle of joy robbed me of the conference, something I will never forgive him for. Sitting at home during this event, getting updates from Josh, gave me more FOMO than a hungry hound sitting outside a butcher shop. But hey, there's always next year. I was able to tune in to many of the talks, and to put it mildly, it's an exciting time to be a Bitcoiner. This week we have a fun one for you. The two of us have been invited recently on a number of other shows and podcasts, including the Pomp Podcast with Anthony Pompliano, Why Are We Bullish with BTC Sessions, the Bitcoin Matrix Podcast with Cedric Youngleman, and the discussion you're going to hear today with Chris Alamo of the Amateur Investors Podcast. In this Gloves Off Rip session, we explore more about Josh and I's background and Bitcoin journeys, why the current economic system is mathematically guaranteed to reset in some way or another, why Josh is the same person as Ron Swanson, and what else you might put in your portfolio other than Bitcoin. Chris was a fantastic host and equally adept contributor. Chris Alamo works for Bitcoin Magazine and hosts the Amateur Investors Podcast, which is chocked full of Bitcoin and finance gems. We'll link the show below. You should go check it out. You can find Chris on Twitter at ChrisAlamo6. That's at C-H-R-I-S-A-L-A-I-M-O-6. As always, you can follow us as we ruffle feathers on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. Ladies and gentlemen, we have some dynamite. I mean kick-ass sponsors of this show. These are Bitcoin-focused companies that know what's up. The BCB pod is powered by CoinKite. Producers of the Cold Car, the Open Dime, the gorgeous Block Clock display art piece, and a number of new products including the Sats Card, the Tap Signer, and a new Cold Card Mark IV. If you are looking to store your hard-earned capital on a dictator-resistant, authoritarian-proof, clown-repellent calculator, your search is over. The cold card is simply the best option available and affordable on the world today to safely and securely take custody of your Bitcoin. We both use these hardware wallets, and we've used them for a long time. Don't delay. If you have your Bitcoin on exchanges and your setup is not quite right, fix it. ASAP. If you need help, we got you. 
Down in the show notes, we've linked our favorite cold card guides to service cold storage beginners all the way up to OGs. You can access all CoinKite products at coinkite.com and be sure to use promo code BCB for 5% off purchases of cold card. BCB podcast is also powered by Ledin. Ledin is a very unique financial services company with a highly principled Bitcoin forward perspective. They are the first ever digital asset lending platform to undergo a formal proof of reserves attestation, where an independent public accountant regularly attests that the company is properly accounting for client assets. Simply put, this company mirrors and embraces the transparency, accountability, and auditability of the Bitcoin protocol and network itself. If you're a regular listener of this show, you certainly notice that we advise our listeners to be careful, manage risk, and never get over leveraged. And that does include ensuring that any borrowing and lending decisions make sound mathematical sense based on your lifestyle and specific situation. Where available in your jurisdiction, Ledin offers a menu of powerful financial services. You can keep ownership of your Bitcoin and access dollar loans with Ledin Bitcoin back loans. Harness your Bitcoin holdings to buy a new property or finance the home you already own with the upcoming Ledin Bitcoin mortgage product. Save Bitcoin and USDC to have access to Ledin dollar loans and trading service if available. You can look into Ledin's well-architected menu of services at Ledin.io. Alrighty, plebs, sit back, relax, grab a coffee, grab a beer, do what you need to do to get comfortable, and enjoy this collision between the Blue Collar Bitcoin podcast and the Amateur Investors podcast. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. All right, guys, welcome to the show. This is episode 69. I swear, Susie B, this is merely coincidence that uh, episode 69 with two firefighters, uh, they're both fully closed right now. I know you were hoping they were just in their uh, fire hats and nothing else. But <laughs> yep. uh, now, all joking aside, it's a pleasure having you guys on the show today. So I've got Dan and Josh here from the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. Of course. Yeah. Happy to have you guys here. We're excited, Chris. Thanks, man. All right. So uh, I, I want to start a little bit of ba background on both of you guys. So just tell me a little bit about yourselves. Where did you guys grow up? Uh, I was curious if you guys went to college or if you just went right into the firefighting profession. And uh, I'll just toss it over to Dan to start. So we are in the Midwest. I grew up in the Midwest near Chicago. And I do have a college degree. I went to a, there may be some people, you're either aware of this school or you're definitely not. I went to Wheaton College, west of Chicago. It is a conservative Christian institution. I actually studied biblical and theological studies and rhetoric communication with the thought of actually going into full-time Christian ministry back in the day. Without going into too much detail, my life has taken me both in worldview and profession in a very different direction than that, but I enjoyed the time there. I felt like those two degrees kind of complemented each other uh, the rhetoric comm degree was fun. I actually, actually, I called basketball games on the radio too in, in college, small division three. I was play by play for men's basketball, flexing the pipes a little bit on the airwaves. <laughs> I played college golf, got out of college, didn't know what I wanted to do. And I actually ended up going into the golf business. I got what's called my class A PGA membership. I was a manager at a golf facility for almost five years enjoyed it, realized it wasn't a good fit for the family, started looking for other careers, 
being a medic really stood out to me as something I might be interested in doing. Did some ride time at the fire department in the town I worked in. And within 20 minutes of being in the firehouse, I knew it's what I wanted to do for my career. So went to EMT and paramedic school, started taking tests every weekend, which is kind of what you want to do if you want to get into decent paying career firefighting. Uh, I have been on the job for five years, I guess in the background of that kind of ever since college, uh, money and investing have been in, has been top of mind for me. I have some close connections that have made some less than ideal decisions with money, which I think motivated me to learn more. And then really for the last 10 years have just kind of been as a hobby obsessed with learning how markets work and, and all that and discovered Bitcoin in 2017. As I say on our show, Josh is my Bitcoin daddy. He introduced me to Bitcoin. Um, Don't forget. Yep. (laughs) And uh, I'm sure we can get into more of why it's interesting and all that, but that was kind of my journey in. But Josh and I are obviously great friends. We work at the same department and it's this fun compliment of having this day job that's very tactile blue collar-esque being a first responder, but then also having time with our schedule and even even at the firehouse to read and learn and study and explore, which is obviously what we're doing on our show. Uh, for me, um, I've had a long winding experience through my college time. I, I got a job right out of high school when I started going to uh, school at night for college and meandered through three or four different degrees and a couple of different schools I just couldn't pin down exactly what I wanted to do. And so my friend decided he was going to take an EMT class. And I was like, well, I've tried everything else. I'll I'll go with you and I'll see how this is, see how it fits. So um, the EMT thing went well. I enjoyed it and continued to get a paramedic license and then started testing, like Dan said. Um, While in college, though, I mean, I took accounting, realized really quickly that like this is so dry and so boring and I'll be stuck in a cubicle for the rest of my life and probably not make it because I'll kill myself if I had to do this every day. <laughs> and then GMI. a business degree that, I mean, I, I worked at a financial institution and I saw what these people do, saw them sitting in their cubicles day in and day out for, I was there for seven years and realized quickly that I needed to find an alternative to that. And firefighting was that alternative. And in the meantime, started being, started being very critical and understanding of like what's going on in politics, how money works. And once I understood how the Fed worked and started going down this Austrian economics rabbit hole, I was obsessed with gold. Uh, that was my primary investment to like 2016 until I discovered Bitcoin 2016-17 and flipped the switch really quick when I really started understanding what was going on there. So yeah, I'm a hardcore Austrian. I would dare call myself a libertarian <laughs> who works for a municipal government. So I'm basically, <laughs> I, uh, I identify very strongly with parks and recreation. Uh, what was Ron Swanson? I yeah. identify with him very strongly. Josh is Ron Swanson. I just don't have the stash. He just, just needs no a stash. stash. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So now we're getting into the good stuff. So, I mean, you gave me a lot of bits and pieces there. So Josh, uh, as being uh, Dan's daddy, as I guess you guys referred to it, uh, <laughs> getting into Bitcoin in 2017, I guess, Take me through the journey of uh, how you went down the rabbit hole being a gold Austrian guy. What made you find Bitcoin? And then what made you go down the rabbit hole? And then afterwards, Dan, if you want to, I guess, uh, add color to that as well. Yeah, I, I, I had multiple touch points along the way. 
I know for a fact, and I kick myself to this day, and everyone everyone has the same story that they read about Bitcoin in 2012 and they discarded it as bullshit, which is exactly what I did. Um, it might have even been 2011 because I still worked at that financial institution. I remember seeing it on, I think it was an, a technical, Ars Technica article about Bitcoin's latest bubble. Read it, thought that is a cool idea, but that's not going to work. Somehow that's not going to work and just lost interest completely. Another touch point a few years later, ignored it. And then in 2017, I was reading the book Sapiens, and there's a chapter or a subsection that talks about digital currency. And that was the thing that just knocked a pillar over in my mind and said, it screamed at me like, this is something I need to learn about right now. And bought a decent amount of Bitcoin the next, throughout the next couple of days and was obsessed just learning about it, diving down this rabbit hole talking about it nonstop at work. People were just sick <laughs> of hearing me talk about Bitcoin. And I didn't even have a full understanding of it, but I was I was driving it as hard as I could. And that's how I think Dan, I was exposed to it when I was just going on some crazy angle about how it was going to change everything. And, and then Dan picked up on it extremely quickly, like very sharp guy. And he got it almost immediately. And we were on this journey, watching ourselves make a ton of money, lose a ton of money. And uh, shit coined the hell out of 2017. <laughs> so I can tell you that. The thing is, the thing that I'm, I guess, proud of and grateful for is, you know, I had I had just enough of a number of different disciplines to understand the potential significance. I mean, I had the initial skepticism, as everyone should have, by the way. If you know nothing about Bitcoin, nothing about economics, nothing about finance. Your disposition should be skepticism. That should be what prompts you to go learn and study and grow, right? I, th I think it, it, to go on a little bit of a tangent here, I think that's where having been in this for the amount of time we have, having you know orange pilled and coached and gotten rejected, the whole deal. I think our primary mission, both in the podcast and just in personal life, is pushing people towards a path of education. It's not by tomorrow. It's have the motivation to go learn and get hungry to get some information. Back to the, the kind of Josh introing me, I knew pretty quickly, I had never heard of Bitcoin before 2017. I had never heard the word. So I'm a little different than some other people that had heard of it years ago. But in about 30 minutes sitting on the bay floor at the fire station of Josh explaining to me what this thing you know, purports to do, I had this innate understanding that if it does what he says it does, it's very, very significant. Um, I've kind of had, in addition to finance, I think one thing that's fascinated me in my adult life is just the speed and the way in which change happens. So, like, I've always been fascinated with the internet adoption, you know, now that we could call it the internet adoption S curve, like how quickly that happened. I'm 32 years old, I remember dial up internet. I remember, you know, people our age are just old enough to have recollections of how pervasive this has become in just, you know, half of a lifespan. So, understanding that it, you know, what the economic climate currently is, recognizing sort of where debt loads were at vaguely, the significance of what I can now characterize as the end of a long-term debt cycle, like these were things I was aware of and I had no fixed income in my portfolio, zero because of some of this understanding of those implications. So yeah, the takeaway from day one was if this does what it's, what Josh says it does, this is significant. That prompted me to go learn and study. I think the first book I picked up was uh, Internet of Money by Andreas Antonopoulos. And 
AA really was for me Dude, huge. I mean, King I Kong watched back everything he did on YouTube. He is the reason I had the baseline understanding of the significance of this protocol. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty awesome. I actually, uh, I, so I'm much later than you guys. I came in in 2020, uh, so class of 2020. Uh, I heard about you know the Bitcoin pizza. I had no idea what that meant. I was like, you know, had I bought it when that happened, I'd be in a much better situation uh, than I am now. But yeah, uh, we I'm all just, think that, but we probably would have sold at like five thousand. You know, yeah, yes, and we I, all I would have sold. Now. I, I yeah. agree. I, I think, and also just the sketchy nature of trying to buy it back then with right. wiring it Western Union to this random guy to this guy to right. Mount you had Gox. To go, you had to go to a payphone to call Mount Gox to you know take some money to a guy in an alley to get some Bitcoin. It was crazy. And I even heard uh, when you guys had Guy Swan on, he said that like the way that his identifier for a $100 purchase was like, just put $100 and 17 cents. And that 17 cents is his right. identifier that it's him. Uh, so <laughs> it's, you know, for the internet of money is not very good accounting system in the beginning, at least. Uh, then I heard it again, actually in 2017, when you guys bought I literally thought it was a Ponzi scheme. Uh, probably part of that, that's probably partly on me uh, or Tulip Mania, I guess, from, I guess, just only seeing the mainstream uh, headlines. And when it rode up to 20K and only to crash, I kind of felt pretty vindicated. And mm. uh, I know you guys talked on your podcast that you have a lot of respect for Preston Pish. Uh, I am, this podcast is called The Amateur Investors. And I like to believe I'm a big value investor guy. I listen to all of Preston's podcasts. I caught all the way up. And in the quarterly masterminds, he mentioned in March of 2020, this Bitcoin thing. I'm like, Preston, yeah. I really respect you. It's not my cup of tea. I know the other guys did shorts like Hari and, and um, uh, Tobias uh, shorted stuff. And just some of their picks, I just like to listen and like maybe do my own analysis on them. But then right. when Preston mentioned it again in June of 2020, Preston's a guy I really respect from just listening to his podcast. I'm like, shit, if Preston's mentioned this twice, I've never heard in the quarterly masterminds ever them mention the same stock twice. I mean, I guess they mentioned Google in like 2016, 2017, and then again in 2019. But like yeah. the first time in back-to-back -back episodes that he mentioned, I was like, shit, I missed something. I need to go back and I do a lot of fucking research. And I ended I, up buying my first bit of Bitcoin at $9,000 a pop on Robinhood, a thousand bucks on Robinhood. Uh, another mistake I made, but I bought it. And then that's when I started going down the research uh, rabbit hole of it all in 2020. Go ahead, I, Josh. I was going to say, I think you did really well for yourself. I mean, I thought it was hilarious because I've been listening to Preston since 2015 or 16. And he mentioned Bitcoin back in, back in those days, you know, passingly as like, you know, this is an interesting thing, but he, he wasn't obsessed with it until 2018, 19, and 20. And I was cracking up listening to those masterminds where everyone else was going into their in-depth analysis of Google or, you know, Amazon or whatever it was they were shilling. And he's just like, Bitcoin mic drop. <laughs> it was like it's hilarious to uh, to look back and hear him talk about that because he was absolutely right and he you know he stuck to his guns and he did a spin-off podcast which is crazy successful it seems like. When so you I mean, good for him. He's uh I mean this goes obviously without saying he's a really special bitcoiner. Uh I think he's just a very special thinker. And those the, those types of people they just don't come around that often, man. I mean there's a there's a lot of, you know, good thinkers. There's not very many great thinkers, and he does it with such clarity and honesty. Um, but what he did, branching off like to go Bitcoin only with what has at times been the biggest investment podcast in the world, that takes some. That takes a ball sack. I mean, that mm -hmm. takes some serious cojones to do that. 
And I'm sure he's gotten, I mean, he, people adore him, obviously, but he's also, I'm sure, gotten a ton of kickback. And, um, but man, to watch that conviction, that unwavering conviction backed by sound logic. Uh, yeah, he's had a base, you know, he set a huge impact on the two of us for sure. Yeah. The other thing about him that, sorry, that I think a lot of people, I'm sure a lot of people appreciate maybe subconsciously, but he doesn't talk shit. He doesn't, you know, ruffle anyone's feathers generally unless they really deserve it. And he's not, he's not somebody to tell people to have fun staying poor, just all these meme nonsense things. Like he's just a respectable guy and he obviously is really good at what he does. And he makes you want to study and learn. You know, one of his, re- his constant messages is go verify this for yourself. I mean, the last time we had him on, that's how he ended. That was his Read. parting message. Don't, don't trust me for it. Go learn. Right. And if you listen to, to TIP, it makes you want to learn. You're not just, you're, you you're kind of trained not to just go with the whatever's said on the show. It 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 generates hungry learners one after another. Yeah, I completely agree with both your sentiments. And uh, you know, not to put anyone on pedestal because I know there's many people that have come into this space and then defunct or defaulted. But um, e- even if Preston were to go astray, and I hope that's not the case, um, you know, I really think we're going to look back on him being uh, a pivotal point in, in Bitcoin's history and, and what he's done basically for sound principles. And to even Josh's point, I mean, the dude is humble as hell, gracious in the way he speaks. Uh, I wish I had a 10th of that, to be honest, because I definitely have been yeah. known to go off the rails on some people. So the, the, the other thing I was going to say too, before we closed out the Preston, Preston piece here is uh, if, he, if he feels the thesis is violated, he is going to say so. You know, he has the intellectual integrity and honesty. If he, if for some reason his Bitcoin thesis isn't panning out the way he expects or some fundamental is, is infringed upon, he's going to be upfront with the audience. And I certainly hope we'll do the same thing. I mean, we're, we're, we're in this project for fun, for our own benefit, to be on the learning journey. And uh, yeah, if something turns the other way and the, and the logic and reasoning behind the Bitcoin use case is violated. I hope we'll have the integrity to do the same thing. Yeah, I completely agree. So I I guess moving over. So I guess I have a two part question. So one, how do you introduce this to firefighters or your fellow coworkers uh, or blue collar workers in general? And then I guess the flip side, uh, I know LaSalle street, I know you guys are based out of Chicago. That's kind of like the wall street of, uh, of Chicago, I believe, or I've been told, the equivalent. Yeah, that's what the CME is. Yeah. yeah. So on one end where people are coming to you and they're like, what is Bitcoin? How do you pitch it to them? And then how do you combat the misinformation or the, the Wall Streetites of Chicago that are like, oh, this is stupid. You guys know what you're doing. I do this for a living. Uh, so I guess if you want to give me back and forth for that. Um, I think in the current climate, the best way to approach this is to tell people that this is unconfiscatable money, that this is something that is self-sovereign, if you understand how to hold it and you understand how it works and you take some basic steps at um, holding your keys and you do a bit of research to understand it, you have the ability to stand up your own sovereign currency that you own um, in whichever way you'd like. You can run your own part of the network with a node. And so you have the ability to be uncensorable in a world full of people that want to censor you. And not only that, but it's uncensorable in its finite supply as well, which is the other key aspect that we're seeing the obvious advantage of in the world today. Every currency in the world is devaluing itself. Um, 
they're all doing it together. So it's not so obvious, but it's a lot more obvious when everyone looks around and they realize that a used car costs 20% more or 30% more this year than it did last year. Or a house is 18% more this year than it was last year. When all of these things, including commodities, I mean, for Christ's sakes, commodities, <laughs> commodities look like penny stocks right now. They look like shit coins in 2017. Like, well, it was, uh, I can't remember which commodity, nickel, I think. Did nickel, you guys see 70, what that did? 70%, I think, overnight. Yeah, in, a, in a day. Like, this is not normal. Things aren't right. And when you check the temperature of the world and you find out everything is, is acting completely bonkers, I think it's uh, pretty easy to sell this to people when you, when you basically teach them that this is just honest money. This is something that nobody else can fuck with. And you can hold and you can pass it on to your grandkids. And there's no way for someone to seize it from you short of a wrench attack, which, I mean, they could kill you. They still can't get your money. It changes the entire aspect of violence when it comes to taking someone's or seizing someone's assets. It's, uh, it's a game changer on a lot of levels. I, dude, it is so hard to know where to start with people. It's almost overwhelming. Would you guys not agree? Like when you're engaging in this conversation with someone for the first time, for me, there's almost this impulse not to do it. It feels I don't. I don't do it nearly as much as I used to. Yeah. The podcast has become uh, a little bit of a excuse outlet in, in the sense that it's, yeah. you know, I have some recently said, if you're really curious, if you really want to learn, we've recorded 150 hours of content that's available on the internet. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. But when it is, obviously, you know, I think there is almost like a duty to to make this semi-religious, to evangelize with what's going on here. Like people that you love and care for, you want them to understand the significance of what's happening, both because of the potential that it offers and the threats that exist in the current system. I would say I start, I'll start with the firemen sort of less financially literate crowd, and then I'll pivot over to people that are in professional finance. I go one of two directions with an intro. One option is trying to do my best to explain that the current system is in a precarious spot. So going into some math about debt over GDP, how much leverage is in the system, and then the implications of either deleveraging or debasement as a result of that. Start with the system is extremely fragile. There's a lot of unknowns. Your purchasing power can evaporate in two very profound ways, either just by pure recession depression or just insidious or significant momentary inflation. You know, It's hard to know which way it's going to go, whether this is going to play out over 10 or 15 years or whether it's going to be... You know, We had Lawrence Lapart on. He's arguing that hyperinflation is absolutely in play. So painting the picture of how precarious things are and then inserting Bitcoin as insurance against the system and explaining how it's juxtaposed against the, the current system. It's it's fixed supply, it's unmanipulable, you know, yada da da da. So kind of painting it as that insurance option that you should at least own a little bit in the off chance that the system implodes. And I'm stealing some from Greg Foss here. If you think there's a one percent chance the system implodes, put one percent of your portfolio in Bitcoin. Just kind of get people started there. The other angle I come at is, and Josh hinted at this a, a second ago, is just identifying all the artificiality. Very easy to do right now in this climate. You can say something to the effect of, why in the hell was your retirement account at all-time highs during one of the biggest economic crises our species has had in 100 years? We just had a global pandemic. 
everything got shut down and markets are booming. If that doesn't smell fishy to you, I, I don't know what to tell you. So you kind of, and usually the thought, I have no idea. I don't know why it's behaving that way. It just is. And then that can segue into how the system's structured and how all this liquidity is inserted and how interest rates are manipulated. And then there comes Bitcoin as the foil. So latch on to something they can identify with and then present Bitcoin as the solution. And then in every instance, the emphasis is don't stop the learning with me. You know, so there's usually a follow-up resource. Like maybe Josh, you can say what your go-tos are, but for me, it's like the still the bullish case for Bitcoin article. That's more like a 30-minute commitment by VJ Boyapati. And you know, the book is great too. It's longer, but like great intro resource or someone that's wanting to dive in more. I actually think my go-to right now is Why Buy Bitcoin by Andy Edstrom for someone that yeah. wants a little bit more. I agree with your with that one, um, especially after having read it recently. That's a great book for an intro. Great yeah. book. Or or linking a podcast or two, like the BTC001 with Preston Pish and Robert Breedlove is still a go-to episode. Yeah. Anything Creasis has ever done is I love his a stuff. freaking gold mine. I mean, if, if for even all the people we've had on, and we've had on some of the biggest Bitcoiners in the world, that crisis episode for Josh and I we still loved, stands fun, man. out, man. Still so, stands out. Dan, you mentioned Lepard a few minutes ago, and I've been thinking more and more about our talk with him. And I remember, so one of the my favorite moment from talking to him was there was a we asked him the question, "How long do you think the system's going to survive?" Like, and so I literally was, shit my pants at this well, segment. Like, I had to go he, change he my was, diaper. So he started part. explaining his position and the way he was explaining it, it sounded to me like he was about to say probably 20 years or so. And then he just drops this, like, well, I think two to five years. And we both just started laughing because it was such an unexpected thing for him to say. And a month or two ago, that sounded a lot more far fetched than it does today. Like a month and a half later, I mean, <laughs> he could be right. It's crazy that it, it it's changed so much in a month that two to five years doesn't sound that crazy to me. And yeah. um, that's a scary thought in a lot of ways. Um, it's really scary. I, yeah. I certainly don't want to be vindicated and 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 have the entire mm. world explode. Like nobody wants Bitcoin at a million dollars while the only thing you can buy with it is guns and ammo. Like that's not going to be a fucking world that I want to be in. Um, yeah, or first responding in. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's a, yeah, we don't want we don't want uh, violence on the streets. Yeah, hyperinflation is not something to joke about, and it's it's thrown out flippantly. People are almost rooting for it in the Bitcoin community it, to yeah. some extent. And it's like I, I don't think you guys you have studied history enough to understand what the implications of that are. I was gonna say because you asked that second part about uh, like institutional money and traditional finance perspective. I'll keep this brief. I, I do have some connections and friends uh, that work in professional finance. I would say I'm insanely optimistic about the transition in perspective. Uh, and I just have a small sample size. You may have heard me talk about my four eyes. You know, this thing was idiotic when I first got into it. Most people in TradFi thought this was completely idiotic. Then it's now it's transitioned to interesting. I would say we're we're in the interesting phase right now. Soon we'll get into the it's important phase, and then eventually it'll be imperative. We're kind of at that second phase where, but it it's been a very noticeable and fairly quick transition from you're an absolute buffoon for owning this to yeah, it's interesting. I have it for some of my clients. Um, 
you know, be aware of the risks. But yeah, it's it's very it's very interesting technology. So we're gonna quickly move from that to holy shit, this is important. Yeah. I think we I were think moving out of that when, when the entire uh the everyone in finance was talking about blockchain, not Bitcoin. Like mm, that narrative yeah. has died in the last year and a half to two years, really, really with a whimper. And we're moving into a new world, especially now, when people realize like censorship resistance is the only thing that really matters in this game. If your cryptocurrency or whatever it is you're trading or you think is going to be valuable in the future, if it can't withstand a state level attack, it it's worthless. Yeah, totally. The other thing, Josh, we haven't really talked about this, but one thing I've been thinking about recently is, and Chris, interested in your thoughts too. I think institutional finance, particularly in fixed income, which I think I think a lot of people don't understand how much bigger the fixed income market is than equity. I mean, it is it is it's like not four x at least. Oh, it's, 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 it's at least four x, I think. Yeah, and there's so much money to be made just moving these products around. You know, I have a really good friend that's a bond trader in the city. Even if the bond market gets hammered, you know, smart traders are going to be making money for a long time. There's a large demand for debt, and these markets are endlessly complicated, and and they are fascinating. Um, but I think where some people are going to start paying more attention is as dollar hegemony starts to fracture. Because a lot of this debt-based system is built on the presupposition that there's just infinite, endless demand for the U.S. dollar. You know what I mean? And I think as yeah. that starts to dissipate, you're gonna see some more big players starting to recognize it. Who knows? It's hard to call dates and times, but it sure seems like that's starting to happen right now with everything going on in the world. Yeah, um, you you play that out a little bit, and you think about how where is this going to go? Are are we going to have debt instruments, you know, backed with renminbi? Are we going to have ruble backed? I mean, unless these other countries are going to decide that they're going to use a hard commodity like gold or gold is obviously the what they would choose if they were going to try to bootstrap a new world currency and that would be the most sensical way I would think that they would do this because then they would have an innate trust at least initially to say uh, one ruble is backed by x amount of gold or maybe even x amount of oil. Um, to have some uh, intrinsic value, I guess you could call it, because nobody trusts you. Nobody trusts Russia. Nobody trusts China. The political, um, the, I mean, there's no way for anyone to actually hash every, anything out in court in China. In China, the CCP can decide that, guess what? What's yours is no longer yours, and there's no rule of law here. So until they establish a long course of rule of law, nobody wants to hold that currency. Yeah. So thinking about it in that way, if they're not going to back it with gold, and even if they do, who's going to trust them that they're not going to debase that? It seems fairly obvious to me that the only non-state currency that can be trusted by everybody is Bitcoin. It's just yeah. a very short time frame that it's been around. We sent this tweet this week that I think summarizes my viewpoint on this, and it says, the money has been weaponized, the global economy is fracturing, international communication is breaking down. At some point, our best guess is Bitcoin becomes the world's indiscriminate financial mediator. It's made for distrustful climates. I just see all roads leading to Bitcoin right now on the international settlement. I don't know. I don't know when. I don't know where it starts. I don't exactly know how, but all the game theory seems to point that yeah. this thing is going to be where the settlement is happening internationally eventually. I think it, arguably it's already started. In El Salvador, I mean, they're they're doing a bond issuance backed by Bitcoin. 
That's it's crazy. Yeah. But this is already happening and that bandwagon is pretty thin at this moment, but I wouldn't be surprised to see a few more countries pile on this year. We will see. Yeah. Um, wow. A lot to unpack there. So <laughs> I wrote down a bunch of different things. So I'll tackle them one at a time. Uh, the El Salvador comment at the end there, Josh, I think it's very interesting. I- I'm sure you guys know Samson Mao. He was yeah. the, um, oh man, I'm drawing a blank. I think he was the block stream. Yeah, but he was from Blockstream, but the CTO, I believe there. I think CFO, you're right. Yeah, I he just it. left yeah. like last week, right? Yep, he just left last week. And for our listeners who have not uh, heard what he's doing now, he is now going to be a nation state consultant um, for Bitcoin adoption. Bitcoin so, ambassador. Yeah, Bitcoin ambassador. Uh, and I assume if he's leaving his job, he has clients lining up. I mean, I'm just going <laughs> yeah. to Most people don't leave and say this is going to be their new job and they have zero clients starting off. So yeah. I'll leave it at that. And, and I'm was, sure he was doing fine at Blockstream. Let's uh, yes. also put it that way. Adam Back said it was a, it was a big loss, and I believe that they seemed like they were a good uh, a good group for sure. Uh, but then he was even talking with, uh, and I'm I'm going to butcher. I, I don't know Mexican politics, but she uh, a Mexican senator or or something to do with finances because she was, said something in Spanish. I translated it on Twitter, and she's like, "Oh, like I, I'm looking forward to Bitcoin." And he's like, yeah, we have a lot of work to do. I'm like, I don't know what this means, but I'm pretty <laughs> excited for it. I can, I can uh, speculate on that. Let's go with that. Yeah. Uh, the comment with the CCP is very interesting. I mean, a lot of people uh, in, uh, I guess for in the proper way to look at it, they don't trust China. And I mean, just look at Jack Ma. He went missing for like right. four months from like June to October. There's, isn't there still a female tennis player that's Yes. Then disappeared and still hasn't reappeared. Yeah, she hasn't reappeared. I don't know. She she went missing in September. It's been a while. It's been a while. Scary stuff. Not the kind of people that you want to be messing around with. To give people perspective, I know Jack Ma, we know him. I I believe you guys do because he's in finance, you know, uh, helped develop Alibaba and and a bunch of big companies over there. It's like if Elon Musk went missing and it's not just him playing a prank on everyone, but for like four months. And it's like, oh, we haven't seen him in Tesla. We haven't seen him in SpaceX. He's not at Mars. Like, where the hell is like Elon? This isn't a joke. Yeah, uh, Elon's get- at a re-education camp. His tweets were a little uh, feisty, and we decided he needed some re-education for a few months, folks. So he'll be back. You know, we're just lobotomizing him real quick. <laughs> Not to get political, but I'm sure there is a couple senators and politicians in the U.S. that would like that outcome. I'm sure but- there are. Yeah, <laughs> he's on a CIA black site for his uh, chemical lobotomy. In case you know, it'll get physical lobotomy if he doesn't cooperate. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the Lawrence Lepard thing, I had him on right before Christmas. So my big thing with, with Lawrence, I was asking him, uh, being a young guy in, in his late 20s, ending his 20s now uh, to talking to Lawrence, I was like, I was asking him a lot of things like, I understand you're in Bitcoin and he's, he's a gold guy. I, I don't hold that against him. That's you know part of the free and open markets. But I was kind of like asking him a lot of questions of how gold uh, what's happened with gold since he's been investing it. And he's always kind of like an Austrian economist. And I was asking about the 2008 financial crisis. I know you guys are a little bit older than me, but I was still in college or like in my freshman year of college, right now when that was going on. And I was like, you kind of saw what things were happening. Like, how come you weren't profitable that year? And and I wasn't trying to be like mean. He's like, oh, like I put a bunch of shorts on. I was holding gold. I was doing like, I was preparing for the inevitable to come. And he's like, oh yeah, I went from having, I think he said like about a 50% uh, per, like percent increase in his portfolio, like in the re- recession as it's hitting in 2007, 2008, until all of a sudden the uh, Federal Reserve and the federal government decided to change the rules and they stopped, they discontinued shorting. And I was like, yeah, they can do that. 
He's like, Chris, yes, they did that. I'm like, so he's like, I went from having a positive 50% position to, I think he flipped to like a minus 15 or minus 20% position. He's like, I was still better than like a lot of the market, which says just how bad the market was. But I was, I was literally blown away. And then he's like, yeah, even he, he was talking about Paul Volcker's letters in the seventies and eighties. And he, in his notes as the uh, federal reserve chair, he talked about, if we're going to do this again, we need to make sure that we uh, keep gold and silver. Like I think word for word, it was something like we need to keep gold and silver under check. So it just goes to show that, you know, they're trying to manipulate markets, whether it's gold or silver. I mean, JP Morgan Chase got hit in 2019 with manipulating markets. It was like $927 billion and they just kind of wrote it off. Even though that when you look at back at their books, they were doing about $4.1 billion worth of gold manipulation. So basically the, the, the Federal Reserve signed off and given them uh, $3.2 billion for doing illegal practices. One of the, the guys trading uh, paper gold, uh, he had to go into jail for two years, but I'm sure it was a nice cushy prison. Uh, so I don't know if you guys want to expand on any of that. I got a couple more points after that. I mean, that just happened recently. Um, what was it? January of 21 when uh, the GameStop craziness was going on and Melvin Capital basically got caught off sides and they changed the rules and they stopped letting guys on Robin Hood short. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, they weren't shorting. They were longing. So Melvin was shorting it and they just got completely lambasted and the rules got changed. Everything got stopped. This is the first time it's happened. It won't be the last, I'm sure. And the, um, the manipulation that's going on, um, I don't know how much manipulation goes on in PMs, but it's pretty obvious and overt how much, how much uh, is going on in, in fixed income markets. I mean, we can't have interest rates this low and money sloshing around this much without massive, massive manipulation. And that's exactly what QE is. And they're completely overt about it. They just have these, they call it, you know, they have these words that people don't understand. They, they make this jargon complicated and they, these FOMC meetings, they talk in circles until people are either bored to tears or they just decide they're too stupid to understand what's going on and they just peace out. So yeah, yeah there's it, massive manipulation going on. If people actually understood the mechanics of QE and it wasn't you know, disguised under Fed speak and really knew, I just finished um, Alex Gladstein's new piece this morning. It's about QE and funding war. It's a great piece, man. Every single article Alex Gladstein puts out, I read, and every single article Lynn Alden puts out, I read. And I those are those are two ones you gotta go for exactly. Um, but he basically makes the point in this piece is like if people, if the average person actually knew what's going on, um, how deficits are being funded, you know, how all this stuff is transpiring, the fiscal spending, yeah, the interest rate manipulation. I mean, for Bitcoiners, we're aware. I mean, the the, le- the level of financial literacy in this space is is very impressive. I don't want to over-dramatize it, but like stuff that's old hat for a Bitcoiner is totally unknown by the average person walking around. So like that point you made, Josh, Lawrence, I love Lawrence Lapar. I think he is an awesome balance in the space. And I think as time goes on, I resonate with his ideas more and more. Basically, Lawrence Lapard has been very clear. Bitcoin is better than gold. It is extremely likely that Bitcoin is going to capture a larger market cap than gold. But to suspect that gold is just not going to perform in an extreme inflationary environment at the end of a long-term debt cycle is also naive. You know, I mean, Lepard, I've said this a few times on this show, but it's worth going through every single time. There's this, he, he goes back to the last 
tangible period that we can equate to the current one, which it's it's not a one-to-one at all, but going back to the 70s up to 81, when gold went from $35 an ounce to $700, right? He basically says in that inflationary period that was extremely significant, gold captured about 7% of global assets. If hard money was to capture 7% of global assets today, that would be at $35 trillion. Right now, there's about $5 trillion of tradable gold. We'll call it $1 trillion of tradable Bitcoin. That's $6 trillion. So he kind of has the low bound of hard money assets at $35 trillion. And anyone that kind of understands the current climate realizes that there's probably going to be significantly more demand for hard money assets in yeah. this episode than there was in the 70s just because of the debt load and the amount of leverage in the system. But I just I love the transparency of Larry of like yeah. It's better, but gold has stood the test of time and people aren't aware I mean the average boomer isn't aware of the significance of bitcoin and they're going to want to go somewhere and a lot of them are going to go to gold. So I, I, that makes more and more sense to me as time goes on. Do I, I actually have owned gold in the past. I don't own any gold right now. That could change. I just, I just can't click buy on it, man. I, I mean, when I'm buying I, gold, I just, the, the mouse just works its way over to Bitcoin. I just can't. <laughs> I agree I can't, with you on that. I, I was actually thinking about that myself today. I have a portion of cash that I've held back for who knows what happens, you know, in case we get a really, really juicy dip. But gold has been something I've been entertaining more and more recently. I have a quote from Henry Ford from the 30s, going back to this whole manipulation of uh, the the banking system, were you? (laughs) He said this uh, in the early 30s. I don't know exactly which year, but he said it's well enough that people of this this nation do not understand our banking or monetary Mm. system. For if they did, I believe there would be a revolution before tomorrow morning. Yeah. And yeah, I this has been going on for a hundred years. It's been going on long before that. People have been clipping coins for eons and um, it's going to continue to go on until Bitcoin is the currency that we all use and partake in because nobody's clipping that. And I expect, I think Dan, you'd agree with this, that there's going to be nation states that are continue are going to continue to use fiat currency, but they very likely will be backed by gold, maybe to restart the system or hopefully Bitcoin eventually. But I expect those fiat systems to be continually debased as well, mm. because even though they're holding a reserve of Bitcoin, they can still continue to reproduce and print more of their fiat CBDC or whatever whatever it is they decide to use. But people can be comfortable with the fact that they can hold bearer instrument Bitcoin and they can not be uh, not be dissolved. You know, the significance of a bearer instrument is massively underappreciated. Like even at the we're seeing this these this couple of weeks, even at a nation state level. I mean, we're just canceling the reserves of another country. And this is Dude, that's not a, crazy. I'm not a fan of what Putin's up to, but this is an egregious violation of like indiscriminate money on a global scale. I, I mean, we're setting this precedent. Yeah. If the US doesn't like you, your foreign currency reserves here are fucked. Like if you're the Chinese. I heard Luke Groman and Pish talking about this the other day. Like, if you're the Chinese, you're like, are you kidding me? Like, they have trillions of dollars in that situation, in that predicament right now. I think it's 13 trillion. So, you know, one, this is along the same line. I'm interested in your guys' thoughts on this. So, I back to a statement that was made a second ago. I think as a Bitcoiner, you need to be ready for the fact that, like, if they can, they will. Like, this thing has not taken a serious blow at, 
dollar hegemony yet. And when it does, when we're at 10, 15, 20, 20 plus trillion dollar market cap, and this thing's actually entered the ring, right? It's not just warming up in the locker room. This thing's walking out and the music's blaring. That's when the fight's going to start. And you need to be ready that it could get nasty. And that's why you need to cold store your Bitcoin and be ready for these things. So that's one side. That's the pessimistic side. I have been very optimistic since I've entered, extremely surprised actually, at the disposition of the US government towards this asset. It's, it's actually floored me that they've been as kind to it as they have been. If you told me that this many politicians would be supporting it, not just tolerating it, but outright supporting it, I would, I would have been very surprised. But one thing that has me thinking this last couple of weeks is the fact that world reserve dollar could fracture even pre-Bitcoin taking over could be a good thing, right? Because if things start, if oil starts settling in ruble and we have multiple reserve currencies, kind of the way Powell talked about the other week, we may kind of be dethroned and then we may be more interested in engaging with this new option, that being Bitcoin. You guys know what I'm saying? Like, If we're already kind of up against the wall, yeah, I hear you. We may view this more as an opportunity than a threat. It's just one sort of thing I've gamed out from the US's standpoint. Yeah, I, I could see that personally because nobody wants to take the option to take to have less power or, you know, less clout. So if you're forced in a position to to have to take that secondary position, then you might as well take the preeminent secondary position and have the biggest stake in it you ca- you possibly can. I mean that's the way I would look at it if I had the if I was in that position. I'm I'm gonna throw a, my conspiracy hat on um, with Pat J. Pal saying just a few days ago. Oh, there can be a couple global reserve currencies. Uh, I know we've said on Bitcoin Magazine Live we had a segment where it's like if you have to say you're famous or say you're a celebrity, you're not really a famous or a celebrity. Right. So it's J. Pal saying, oh, there could be a couple global reserve currencies, or there's room for more. Do you think he's talking about Bitcoin? Do you think he's talking about seeing Russia break away and do something with China? I know that's not favorable to him. Is, is he saying there's room to to back something with something else? I don't know. My my take on it is he sees a another currency system between China and Russia. Um, I don't think that he views Bitcoin as a competitor in a real way, personally. What are your thoughts, Dan? It's really hard to say. I think there's a tendency on Twitter to pretend like all these people are idiots. And, and I'm here to tell you they're, they're not idiots. Like Jerome Powell is not a moron. Okay. He's a smart person with a lot of firepower behind him. Uh, do they do some ill-advised things? Sure. But they're in an impossible predicament too. I mean, they've inherited a system that's just absolutely impossible to fix with mandates from above. I would guess that he is aware of the potential significance of Bitcoin at this point, especially with, I mean, this, this stuff is happening so freaking fast right now. I mean, it's it, when you divorce yourself from price, it's almost like pinch yourself every week. There's just something coming out that is just shocking in terms of how much this is permeating the mindset of high-level individuals and institutions. So I, I have a feeling he is aware of the significance but yeah, I would agree. I, I don't. I would doubt that it's at the point right now where he views it as a as a legitimate, tangible threat. But that's hard to know. I mean, he he could if he if he does view it that way. He's not going to say it out loud. I'll guarantee right. you that. 
I just think that the more preeminent threat to them is certainly the Chinese and uh, Russians joining together to have their own uh, side currency system that they're going to try to push on whatever you know BRIC countries are willing to jump on board. Um, I'm not dismissing Bitcoin at all. I mean, obviously, I'm as bullish as anyone else, but I still think for nation state adoption, it's it obviously has to be a lot bigger. I mean, if Jay Powell said during that meeting, like, we're going to start taking some reserves in Bitcoin just as a hedge. I mean, the price would go to like 200K overnight, I would bet. But it's got to get a lot bigger, man. It's got to be seven figures before this is like world currency stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my thing, I guess I'm, I'm in a weird spot because I see the game theory of, you know, or at least the 20, 20, last 20 years, we send dollars to China, China sends us cheap goods back. China for the longest time up until 2008, you know, 2010, 2011, the financial crisis, after all that dust settled there, and we basically devalued their money and we didn't bail them out, they were pissed. So then yeah. they kind of started the Belt and Road Initiative right around there. And they thought, mm-hmm. you know, they send us goods, we give them dollars, they give their dollars to whatever country will take it, you know, countries in Africa, countries in the Middle East, wherever. And, they're and they get trying- real assets for those dollars. They're getting yeah. something tangible. Yep, right. Yeah, exactly. So they're, they're trying to get, you know, whether they build a hospital or an airport or whatever, they're trying to help with infrastructure around the world. And, you know, they, I guess I'd say they kind of look like the good guys because like, oh, we're giving you a loan. We're helping you build stuff. A lot of times those loan percentages or, or the rates that they're giving them are, are basically on the edge, if not, um, what's it called? Um, where it's really high interest rate, like, like loan predatory. shark rates. Yeah, yeah, predatory. There we go. There we go. Uh, predatory rates. So obviously they, they have their own incentive, but I think China, for as much as I don't agree with their incentives, like they don't want world currency status. Like they, they understand what happens. You have to run deficits, you know, yeah. when, with them, when they're trying to bring people out of poverty, it helps when they're not the global reserve currency because they're able to export cheap goods. Um, and they're running into the issue right now as their economy is growing that places like Taiwan or Thailand or other or Vietnam, smaller countries, the labor is cheaper in China, but that's even cheaper in these other countries because they'll work for less because their, their currencies are hyperinflating relative to the US dollar, relative to the, to the Chinese yuan. So it's weird that they're trying to build another system, but they're trying to like, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm in a weird spot. Like, I think China's smart enough to realize that they don't want the world reserve status, but they also, but they want the power that world reserve status comes into, if that makes sense. Like they would love for everyone to run on the digital yuan and shut you off, turn you on whenever you want. I don't know if you guys want to expand on that at all. Along the China line, like, I don't think people appreciate how significant deglobalization could be to inflation. Like we've exported all our manufacturing, all our manufacturing is overseas, largely because of be having the world reserve currency and the insatiable demand overseas for dollars. Like, and so as the world fractures and deglobalizes, which it looks like it's doing right now, that is going to be a, you know, globalization was a deflationary force and deglobalization is going to be an inflationary force. Massively. And yeah, yeah. I don't think that's something people are appreciating right now. <laughs> yeah. Dude, there's um, so many, there's so many, inflationary forces coming together right now, it's mind-blowing. I mean, they printed $4 trillion a couple of years ago. The, the world is sectoring itself off, and we're, we're going to have to produce everything ourselves at a much higher rate, as you just said. Um, oil's getting massively more expensive. It, I mean, the cost of energy is rising massively. Commodities are also rising in tandem. Like, <laughs> I, it's crazy. 
how this is how this is going to play out is going to be very interesting. And I don't think we've seen anything quite like this. I don't even think we could really, really compare the seventies to how this might go. Yeah, I think it's going to be much more inflationary than the seventies. I definitely agree. And uh, for those that don't know, I, have you guys heard of the Triflin d- dilemma where you have to yeah. basically run deficits? And basically, I think even right when Bush got in office in 2001, his first spot that he went, which I actually didn't know till recently, the first spot he flew was to China because he was trying to work out trade deals with, you know, he gets elected, you know, gets into office and basically he's flying to China to figure out ways to basically not that he was basically signing the deal to ship our manufacturing out of the United States over to China. We're going to give him a lot of U.S. dollar currency, and um, you know we're going to have to run deficits if we want to maintain our world reserve status. Uh, yeah. Dan, sorry to cut you off there. Uh, I was going to say, I mean, we're running. We're at a stage right now where we're running out of demand for dollars. This is an oversimplification of history, but you know, you go back to kind of the establishment of the petrodollar system. To, to shout out to Gladstein again, his article on the petrodollar is really good. Great understanding of what dollar is the reserve and hegemony has meant for America, both the good and the bad and the ugly. So we kind of have that with Saudi Arabia. You know, you go to the, you know, up until really 2014, we have all this, you know, we have this arrangement with China where they have this insatiable demand for dollars. Now that demand is starting to dwindle. And guess who the buyer is? It's the Federal Reserve. So we're kind of getting to this point historically where international demand for dollar is waning and is likely going to continue to wane. And there has to be a backstop. There has to be a buyer of last resort if the entire yeah. system's not going to implode. And that's going to be printing money out of thin air. And that's going to be the central bank here in this country. The other comment yeah. I was going to make earlier was just about CBDCs and the surveillance state in China. Pomp has been putting out some good stuff recently. He did a uh, one of his letters last week, he had a show on it a week or two ago that I listened to. It kind of reiterates the usual, but it's profound stuff. The implications of digital surveillance and then that being tied directly to the way you spend and invest and save, which that's where like Bitcoin is. It's not surprising that the Chinese haven't been favorable to this. I mean, how could they? And this And this is sort of the Trojan horse for freedom thing. Some of these countries are going to let it in because it's bright and shiny and going parabolic. But as those citizens get get educated and interested and start to unlock the cryptographic tools of the 21st century, it's going to take the most powerful lever out of the hands of the nation state. I mean, it, money is the primary lever for autocratic yep. authoritarian regimes. Full freaking stop. And when that le- lever is removed, it gets very challenging to wield that big of a club. That's the idea that the sovereign individual drives into for basically the entire book, which is the printing press was the last time we had this kind of a technological innovation that disseminated information widely and gave everybody the opportunity to not only understand and read for themselves, but it dismembered the, the power of the world at the time, which is the church. And the church fractured into thousands of pieces and still around today, but it's, uh, it's a shadow of its former self. And if the thesis from that book is to believed, um, it's very, very possible that money being taken out from the grasp of the state is going to fracture it into thousands of city-states, maybe much, much smaller entities than exist today, which is probably a good thing overall for humanity. But 
along this path is going to be some treacherous, treacherous water to deal with because none, it's like a, it's like a giant T-Rex thrashing about as it realizes it's, you know, it's falling into a pool of tar. Like you don't want to be near that, that mouth as it's swinging its head around, looking to grab anything it can. No, you don't. Yeah. And even, uh, I know you guys talked about the sovereign individual in a couple episodes, Dan, I did exactly what you did in, uh, in one of the podcasts as well. You were saying, you're like, you, I think you were talking with Dylan LeClaire from Bitcoin magazine. And you're like, you keep flipping back to the front of the book. You're like, this was written in 97 or 98 or something like that. You're like, they're talking about magic internet money and how things are going to like fall apart. And, you know, the collapse of currencies and, you know, the attack yeah. on the sovereign individual is just pretty crazy. Uh, I'm going to touch, I, I know we're getting towards the end of it already, unfortunately, but I was going to touch on the hyperinflation thing. So I know you guys are kind of saying, be careful what you wish for. And I know Jeff Booth has a great book in the price of tomorrow talking about how technology is deflationary. So it's pushing it down, but then we're trying to print money to prop currency up and cause inflation. Uh, this is something that people don't really realize. Uh, the, our governments need to cause inflation because they need money to basically, they want to infl inflate away their debt. So in or, in start, right. instead of getting their debt more expensive as technology gets cheaper and cheaper and trends towards zero over time, um, this is actually something I was talking with Lawrence Lepard as well. He's like, he said that book is beautiful, but it basically describes that this fiat Ponzi could have gone on much longer if things like the advances in the internet and social media and all these different things like Zoom, like we're talking on Zoom right now, working, like if this happened, if the pandemic happened in 2001, like I, we'd be back to work a lot sooner than everyone else was saying, you know, with everyone just hunkering yeah. down at home, work on Zoom, you'll be fine. Like that would not have flown by in, in 2001. Um, Dan, you want to add something to that? I, I was just going to say the math is so definitive. There is no spin move around this math. When you realize that just the United States, we're in $32 trillion in debt. We're on the books for $6 trillion a year outflow. Tax receipts are somewhere in the $4 trillions. And our interest payments alone are like three hundred billion at all time lows, and that doesn't even include unfunded liabilities like Social yeah, Security, right. And you know Medicare, and these things are adding. I don't I remember think, what I the numbers were, but it's like ninety six. Last time I checked, one hundred ninety six trillion, yeah. like altogether. That's, it, that sounds it, about right. It is impossible to escape this situation with without some sort of massive event. Now, there's different ways the event could unfold, but like. I'm almost done having the discussion of like, is the event going to happen? Like something's going to happen. The math is point blank obvious. You can't get out of this situation. Um, and like it's even Congress is admitting. So we're at like 130% debt over GDP. Even Congress, who never factors in the possibility of a recession, is saying that by, I don't know what, no, I don't know what year it is, 2040 or 2050, it's going to be 200% of GDP. So, Something's gonna, something's gonna snap. Something's gonna fracture. It, it, we don't want to be chicken little, saying the sky's falling. Run for the hills, but you, at the very least, you have to have your portfolio hedged with something that has the potential to perform in these sorts of environments. Because this is uncharted ter territory, man. And and we had, we do not have all the answers. I mean, Josh and I were bantering on signal as we often do for like an hour and a half last night, like feverishly. We love to try out ideas. I think that's one of the coolest parts of our friendship is we're super open with each other. We're not afraid to have differing opinions. 
and we, we respect where each other's coming from. And we both admit like outside of Bitcoin, we don't know the answer right now. We know that you need Bitcoin. We know that you need a lot of it, that you should be buying it. Outside yeah. of that, this we're, we, we've never experienced something like this. You know, as Dalio says, you don't experience the end of a long-term debt cycle in the span of one lifetime. So, you know, past patterns aren't working anymore. You have to kind of put the pieces together in a completely new way. And there's only so much time in the day to do that. Uh, I'm yeah. as confused as anyone on outside of Bitcoin, what's going to perform. I, if you got any tricks for us, let us know. Because I, I'm... Yeah, please. Yeah. I, I well, so I want to ask you guys a question. If Bitcoin didn't exist right now, what would you be doing with your portfolio? Just, just send it. What are your uh, thoughts? I'll I'll go first if you guys want. I, you want. I actually got it right off the top of my head. So personally, I would probably be, and and I know the the tech stocks are getting crushed right now, but it's like all right, like even if the currency collapse uh, collapses, everything's hyperflating away. I'm going a lot into a lot of the Fang stocks, my, minus Netflix. I have my gripes with Netflix, but you know, Facebook, Amazon, Google, all of those, whether I agree with them or not. And then I have an allocation of gold. And I'm stacking up on bullets is probably the equivalent of Bitcoin. Uh, <laughs> bullets I, bullets I, have been I, a good investment in the last few years. Yeah. Tell and you I, that. My thing, Dalio keeps talking about the beautiful deleveraging is kind of the thesis of his article or the conclusion of it. I don't I think don't this is going to be beautiful at all. I, I no. think, you know, he says it eloquently, but I'm like, Dalio, like, I really respect you, man. But I kind of have a gripe with the, with the ending of this. Uh, now I'll pass it over to Dan if you want to go or Josh. He's an optimist. He is. Josh, <laughs> Josh right, you um, go ahead and then I'll finish. I think that I don't know exactly what the percentage allocations would be. I haven't because Bitcoin exists, thank God, and I can do what I want with that. But I know I would be heavy in gold right now. I'd be very heavy. I would be buying. I would. I would have already had pretty substantial portion of uh, of probably indexed commodities. I would have a decent amount of that, um, and I'd be holding a bunch of cash as well because I think it's very likely we're going to see some really really some really good deals on stocks in the next year or so. That's my take on it. But I mean, could be totally wrong. And that's why it would only be like a 10 to 20% of the portfolio sitting in cash for that kind of possibility. But gold would be a substantial amount of the rest. And so would uh, commodities at this point, because commodities, I mean, basically what we're seeing is the world looking for anything that has intrinsic value and bidding the hell out of it. Because the understanding that the, the water we're swimming in you know, we're recognizing it for what it is at this point, which is devaluing currency. Um, I'm actually quite aligned with your perspective, Chris. And this is uh, where Josh and I disagree a little bit. I actually think the clown show is going to perpetuate for a while. Um, so I'm going to throw on the red nose, man. Um, I, I, uh, <laughs> I basically have my portfolio is Bitcoin and then just diversified equity in the form of mutual funds that is is growth heavy. Like I've been growth heavy for 10 years. Um, growth is getting clobbered right now. It could get clobbered for a lot more time, but I continue to buy it just DCAing as I have for years. Like Jurian Timmer from Fidelity saying he thinks by 2027, the S&P is going to be at 8,000. Now, broad money supply will be a lot higher, but I think there's a very good chance the clown show continues. If the whole thing snaps and implodes, then I have plenty of Bitcoin uh, to be comfortable. Um, of course, I will lose it in some sort of accident here coming up. But uh, so that's kind of how I'm viewing it. I'm playing the artificiality while then uh, a hedge isn't really fair. I mean, I, then the other part of my portfolio is yeah. 
is going to do well if it doesn't. If Bitcoin, here's the key though, because I didn't really answer the question. If Bitcoin didn't exist, I would be hedged in a different way. I would certainly own gold. I would certainly own commodities. I would probably be buying property to some extent. I mean, I think it's, I think it's a, it's hard to, it's hard to answer this question. This is kind of like a, someone at the firehouse is asking like, should I buy a house? Like owning a home is not a bad idea right now. I mean, the real estate market could continue to be clownish for a while as well, but it's, it is, dude, it's hard to tell people to put money down on a house when they could be buying Bitcoin right now. That's the challenge. It's like, yeah. is it a better investment than Bitcoin? Um, Very unlikely. But yeah, I have a lot of uncertainty about that equity position. But well, one know, of the man. things we were, when we were texting back and forth, like my view on equity right now is it's basically on a treadmill. Like your equity looks like it's going up in value, but it's really just kind of staying stagnant. Um, I pitched it an awesome uh, tweet thread on this yeah. like a couple of weeks ago where he mm-hmm. showed if you value, what was mm-hmm. he using as a denominator in that? I think what was it? Was it commodities? Was it gold, or gold and Bitcoin and then also commodities? I think it was something like things. that. But basically, I, it might have been commodities is what I'm thinking. But either way, it, it basically showed that the, um, the S&P 500 is flat for the last 10 years. You know, Obviously, looks massively up if you value it in dollars. But if, you, if you're comparing it to Something like a basket of uh, commodities, it's flat. It's, I mean, I, it's probably losing to commodities pretty hard at, right now, I'd imagine. I, I got to say this, and I say this a lot, and I, and I know Josh agrees, and I'm guessing you will too, Chris. I, I do think that a lot of people end up getting in their own way with this stuff. Like somebody asked me at work a week ago, why aren't you? picking individual stocks like why aren't you you know man why are you in mutual funds is basically the question this is just me personally and i said cuz i i don't have the time to invest to be confident in those picks like i would need i'll just pick an i would need like 30 40 hours of week or a week of research to be able to comfortably and actively manage my portfolio the point i'm making i'm not saying nobody can do it i'm not saying you whatever but so many people get in their own way with investing, right? Just the typical, they're exiting things when they shouldn't, they're entering things when they shouldn't. Whatever your strategy is, I do highly recommend you get out of your own way. And that includes Bitcoin. I mean, we've all been in that point where you've gone down the rabbit, ho- uh, rabbit hole, this thing is just flashing bright orange and you have this panic. You can't sleep at night because you need more Bitcoin. In that situation, go ahead, lump in. But other than that, man, just set it and forget it. Free up your cash flow. Set automatic buys in whatever you're investing in based on the research and fundamentals you understand because just so many people are making these decisions. One month, it's this. Next month, it's this. Six months later, it's this. And and all of this movement and change in conviction often doesn't end up being fruitful. So that, that would kind of be one of my recommendations is like, it's not that you need to be set in stone in one way forever, but try to be patient get comfortable sitting on your hands to some extent on a strategy that you believe in. Well, it's it's a lot like, you know, Warren Buffett is a good example of this. This guy has been averaging into whatever he picks that has long-term viability and he just never never sells it for the most part. Um a lot of things I admire about him and Charlie, but um lately they're just getting pretty old in the tooth, but uh or long in the tooth, I should say. Um, so like yeah, 
Yeah, I agree. Those guys have had the same approach though for decades on decades. They've and stuck Chris, to their it guns. sounds like you've had a similar perspective to me now, probably for a number of years. Like if I was to impulsively exit all tech stocks and growth heavy stuff right now, history may show us that this is precisely the wrong time to do that. Is it hard to stay put in this stuff? It is. It is. Yeah. Um, I, I would definitely agree with your sentiment, Dan. And um, I got I, I got very lucky in 2020. I had a, I had probably one of the best years, I think, for, in the foreseeable future. So a couple things went my way. Uh, I had a bunch of, uh, I was kind of like just fun money that I had in like a Robin Hood stuff. Uh, and I was, I had stop losses on it. So in January of 2020, I got liquidated in my whole portfolio, like literally everything, tech, health, uh, in, uh, insurance, whatever, real estate, all those different things in Robinhood all got liquidated. And I waited. I'm like, something's wrong here. And then I kind of heard the inklings of, of coronavirus. Uh, March of 2020 crashes. I, I'm, I didn't buy the exact bottom, but I was pretty close. I watched some of the stocks that I did pick 10x in value. And then I also kind of threw Bitcoin in in June. And then ultimately, I kind of saw all those gains go up. And then I sold all those, lumped it into Bitcoin, took it off Robinhood. That, that was, you know, learn my lesson there. And then even as I'm getting punched in the mouth with Bitcoin right now, I guess, or all of us in terms of the price drop, it's still the only thing I still feel comfortable buying in. I'm more nervous about the stuff that I have in 401ks or my Roth IRAs that yeah. isn't actually in Bitcoin that I'm like, shit, like I, I literally, I went through this mental exercise of like, okay, you know, did I support the Canadian truckers? Well, I work for a Bitcoin company. Oh, they might turn off my stocks because of that. Um, you know, like I was just getting like really nervous one night of just like, oh, did I say something against a politician on Twitter? Yep. Check that box. You know, did I insult <laughs> Jerome Powell a couple of times, even though he's in an impossible scenario? Yep. Check that box. So like that, like makes me nervous at night where I'm like cold storage and like, it kind of goes into like, you know what you own. Um, and yeah. then yeah. Like, Dan, to yep. your sentiment, like I would not stock pick again since, since 2020. Like I had a great year for, in a nominal standpoint, but even Michael Saylor says, you know, some of the best hedge fund managers or, or man money managers in the world, 2020, they're sitting in their yachts on the Hamptons and they did 37% better, like did 37% returns on their portfolio. And they did like zero work. They're literally like, yep, I'm on zoom on a floaty in the Hamptons. And it's like, the only the only wrong trade in 2020 was not being in the markets. Like literally, that's the only wrong yeah. thing you could have done. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm going to add two more things, and then I know we're going to wrap up to be conscious of Josh's time. I know you got to get up early. So the hyperinflation thing. I'm going to circle back on that real quick. I know we brought up Jack Dorsey, and um, you know, obviously he runs Cash Up. He started Twitter, kind of left to now do more of the spiral and Bitcoin thing. A lot of respect for him. I know he was getting a lot of flack a couple months ago when he was saying like, oh, hyper, he just tweeted hyperinflation. And like yeah. so many politicians are like, how dare you? Like you disrespected the dollar, blah, blah, blah. I just think it's very interesting that they're going after a guy that runs Cash App. Uh, just to give people some numbers, uh, in 2021, by, in, by September, they had 70 million users throughout that. And they were averaging 30 million monthly users. So 70 million over the total year, but 30 million active users. So if a guy's seeing hyperinflation, uh, if there's anyone that I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt, it's a dude that's watching 30 million transactions go through his platform. And I mean, he could just simply do a, a simple economic calculation of like, oh, wow, payments have gone up, you know, 
whatever it like, he sees the transactions of me wiring Dan money on cash app. And it's like, Oh, wow, it says dinner is is the title. And that's more expensive than dinner when he sent to his girlfriend last month. So I mean, if anyone's going to call hyperinflation, I'd give it to a guy like that's running PayPal cash app or something like that. So I thought that was interesting. One last thing I wanted to hit before we go. So I know Josh, in one of the episodes, you were saying you are on the pension fund committee, or you're part of your uh, pension fund, or I, I don't, I don't I am, know the yeah. breakdown of the structure of it. But yep. for you guys, obviously, I feel so bad that you guys, I feel bad that you have pensions and you guys are fighting tooth and nail to, you know, you have to probably go through all this red tape. I'm sure you're looking at all these packets and mandates. I know your pension fund's probably better than most. That it's a a 60, 35, five. I'm not sure what the remaining five was, but 60% equities, yeah. 35% bonds. And I guess 5%, I would assume real estate would be the other. The, the, the other okay. It just recently got restructured, but that's basically right. Yeah. Um, so I guess for you guys are, that are fighting that are like, can we get 0.1%? Can we get 0.05%? Can we get 1%, 5%? I mean, I'm sure you guys are like more in Bitcoin. And I know you guys talked about with Greg Foss that you guys are getting hammered on the bonds end, you know, equities, you don't know which way it's going to go real estate. It's kind of, uh, you know, shot in the dark, but even if you just put half a percentage point in Bitcoin, that would probably cover. And potentially in, if you're looking at it, let's just say at 20 years to be conservative, that'll probably fund your whole um, pension fund. I don't know if Josh, if you want to talk about it, and then Dan, if you can add color afterwards. Um, yeah, we, this is something. So basically, we there were like 375 separate municipalities in Illinois, and they just conglomerated everything into one giant new fund. And it's still in the process of like transferring all of this money to be reallocated by these guys. We went so banana. Now, we went bananas, by the way. The two of us were <laughs> yeah, we kind of the only whistleblowers we knew of. We wrote this this essay actually that uh, got some some unwanted traction, but we were like trying to do our part of like, Hey, this is, this is pretty fucked up. This is not well, the not problem. Good. The biggest problem with this entire thing is it moves it one step closer to the state of Illinois to be able to stick their hand in the pot, which I, I was going to say it, when you're breaking, when you're more centralizing it, there's a lot of risks with that. Yeah. Um, there are some upsides, but I think they're very much negated by the downsides here. But I guess the, the point I'm trying to get at though, is that before this happened, I was part of a five-member committee that could make decisions on what we we're going to allocate in. We could have bought Bitcoin. We could buy damn near anything we want within reason. Now, we have to appeal to a board of uh, nine people, and we have to get in front of them first. And then we have to make an... I mean, it's going to be a long, arduous process in order to make the needle move at all. And um, it, it's a shame. It's a, it's a big mess. Yeah. There, I, I think I appreciate what you said, Josh, because I think we have both come to realize that there are admittedly some upsides to this consolidation. It's also not surprising that it happened. It was a pretty fractured, fragmented system. It was sort of the Wild West. It, it, it could be expected that this was going to go down. I think it's just the precedent of at any given time, a, a legislative state body can tell you where to send your money. That's a really, really scary, significant precedent. That I think the two of us were saying we're getting into the weeds in our own state. We were saying like this needed to happen slower. We needed the stakeholders needed more saying it this and that. Um, yeah, they ran I mean, through very very quickly, like within a month or two. It, the idea, of came course, they form. were like it's in their the idea to came do up, that. and it was like within a month or two, it, it was already a done deal. Like we I'm had sure no they sent it say. out on like December 23rd, like the day before Christmas yeah. Eve, to like vote yeah. upon it or some shit like that. The, the, the thing with pensions, 
and what we're telling guys at our agency and, and, and people that we care about that have pensions is this is where Bitcoin comes back in as insurance. Hopefully you get what you're promised. But as we say, they're either going to perform or they're going to perish, man, to a yeah. large extent. Like if the money's not there, the money's not there. You can be guaranteed all you want that this money's going to be there. It may not, and it, and it may be there, but it's not going to be nearly enough to keep up with your retirement lifestyle. That's the other implication of what could happen with these funds. They could pay out, but be nowhere near enough. And that's where we're just saying, be careful. Make sure you've got cash flow freed up aside from funding your pension. And Bitcoin is an absolutely magnificent hedge for a pension. We're going to do our part to try to keep ours afloat. I think different pensions are going to go different directions, as we've seen for the last couple of decades. Tons of them have perished because they're insanely expensive. They're a huge taxpayer liability. Um, I think we're going to be a little bit insulated just because of what we do for a living. I think we'll be one of, if not the last domino to fall. I mean, I hate to sound hubristic here, but who doesn't like a fireman? I mean, if you, everybody <laughs> loves firemen, dude. We're just teddy bears. We're assholes, but everybody loves us. You know what I mean? So I just think the, the whole hero narrative, the risk we take, even if it's overblown, like it will be insulated to some extent, but pensioners need to be ready for these systems to implode because they're yeah. holding a lot of fixed income. The other thing that Dan and I talked about between each other quite a bit as well, and we have, we're afforded the ability to be a lot more aggressive in our personal investing because basically if if we're completely wrong we have a bit of a safety net because if if i'm completely wrong with my thesis of how things are going in the next 20 to 30 years i'll probably be personally wiped out <laughs> but i'll still have a pension and if i'm right i'm going to be well off and the pension wouldn't have mattered that's um a bit of the calculation that i'm running at least yeah it, but it is this is a very emotional personal issue i mean we know a lot of guys that have spent 30 years doing this career that this is their plan of attack to to weather the next 30. So um, education matters on this front, man. It's more than just fun and intellectual stuff. It's this this impacts people's lives. And dude, Bitcoin is just as important as that food in your basement and that gun underneath your bed, man. It could be it could be a true lifesaver if things really go sideways. Yeah, I, I think you guys are looking at the right way that Bitcoin's kind of your in, in insurance. I'm kind of running naked here because I don't have a pension. So it's like I got a little bit in 401ks and then I'm more on the Bitcoin end and just personal investing. So I guess I'm taking a lot more risk. But um, yeah, and I hope it works out. I mean, the worst thing that could realistically, the worst thing that could happen, I'm, this is not just you guys, just people that run on pensions in general, um, would be you're thinking you're going to get 3000 a month. Let's just throw out a number. 3000 a month, you're retired. And then you come to collect and they're like, yeah, it's more going to be 2100. Oh, by the way, we only adjust 2%, but yeah, inflation's really running 8%. So, you know, right. you're only getting a, you're only getting 2100. You thought you're getting three, get three grand because of it. We're unfunded. And then, oh yeah, we're only adjusting at 2% while inflation's running much higher than that. Or, you know, their CPI yep. basket of goods keeps changing. Like, yeah, we just have two toothpaste in there and cereal. So good luck surviving <laughs> on those two things. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, let's be optimistic. Let's be constructive. That's what we're saying. But be prepared for this thing to implode. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of what we're, we're yeah. saying to people at work. At the very least, pad the hell out of your insurance policy. 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, I wanted to touch on one more thing and then I'm going to ask some rapid fire questions and I'll let you guys get out of here. So I know you guys were saying uh, uh, $35 trillion would be if we get that 7% uh, rush into hard assets. If I, I was leaving, if Bitcoin gobbles all of that up, Bitcoin's price per Bitcoin will be around 1.6 million per coin. That would be kind of uh, very generous because I think some of that's going to go into gold. If it's a 50-50 split, that means uh, just just the Bitcoin side. I didn't calculate the gold side. That's $888,000 per Bitcoin. The super conservative, if we keep that same spread of six to one, meaning that you know right now there's six trillion of gold and about one trillion or six trillion of tradable gold and one trillion of Bitcoin, that puts Bitcoin at right at $238,000 per Bitcoin. And that's the super conservative side. Obviously, we think you could say, okay, if it runs higher than 7%, you're just bumping that number up. If you're saying that Bitcoin and, and gold go 50 50, you know, Bitcoin surpasses gold and it, and it definitely takes more because it's just, you know, melting faces, as Preston likes to say. Or if you say it gobbles the whole 30, 35 trillion because gold can't even keep up with the print that's going on. Like, all right, Dan, send me that gold from Chicago. By the time it gets to me, I already have to factor in the inflation running rampant. So, like, uh, actually, the price we're trying to guess by the time it transports and you're right. taking a risk of uh, third party risk of someone stealing it. So, uh, I just thought that'd be a fun exercise. I just did the quick back of the napkin math here on my calculator on my computer. Um, and but yeah. those are all big numbers, man. Buy yeah, some. Exactly. No matter what happens there, buy some. And that's just being conservative, like I said, if we're, we're saying that, if it's going to be more or less. So, guys, it's been a pleasure having you both on. I got a, a three quick questions or two quick questions, and then I'll toss it over to you guys to where everyone else can find you. But my first question is, uh, I guess, what's been your biggest investment or business mistake that you guys have made? I'll toss it over to Josh first. Um, that's pretty easy, actually. It's just trading. Um, I mean, I've come out both sides. I've come out nailing trades. And I've come out losing pretty hard on trades. So um, it's hard for me to tell people to do it. I generally don't. I think dollar cost averaging beats trading 99% of the time, even if you think you know what you're doing. Um, but for me, I have to, I still do it. I still, I still play the game. But um, yeah, I think trading is probably what bites me more than anything. Yeah, Dan, over to you. Uh, mine is definitely shit coining. I have never sold Bitcoin. So I bought it in 2017. I've not sold a single sat. I've only consolidated alts into Bitcoin. When I first got introduced to it, I, I definitely had an understanding that it had a significance and a potential above the rest. But I, I just, as many of us did, I just inserted my diversified equity perspective into the crypto space because I didn't know enough. So, I mean, I owned a bunch, I owned some bullshit. I mean, I owned XRP, I owned. Litecoin, Ether. Josh got me into Verge. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dude, I mean, there's, that, there's some names that are just. That was like, one of the best little trades I've ever pulled off, man. That was amazing. I love but Verge. I, I well, you, you dumped it on Dan. Is that how the trade went? <laughs> <laughs> uh, in, I mean, some of those altcoins just absolutely ripped, in particular XRP. I mean, it just went bananas. I got this stuff at like 13 cents and it went up to like over three bucks. And I didn't do at at the time it was most parabolic. I didn't do any consolidation. I think I waited all the way down to like fifty cents to move it back into BTC, which still was was great given where Bitcoin was at and where I entered. But yeah, that whole thinking that diversified in crypto was the way to go was a big mistake. It just was a lack of understanding. It just took the out the extra hours and time in the book to be able to put together the significance of decentralization and understanding that 
the word blockchain does not mean decentralized, not even close. And that one of these protocols is just so head and shoulders unique over the rest. Um, yeah, there was a, we did an episode about shit coins and dug deeper into XRP, XLM, and a few of the others and found that most of them have less than a handful of actual nodes running. XRP, if I remember right, has like five nodes. There's some institutions running them, but I mean, what a joke. Complete clown show as far as decentralization. Our first 10 episodes or so were just the two of us shooting the shit. And that shit coins, we did these, this long discussion called shit coins, a reasoned refutation. And we recorded for like over two hours and then realized the audio was totally screwed. And then I had to go back the next <laughs> we night and re-record for like two hours. I was so sick of Josh after that. I, was, um, I kept wondering why I hear paper shuffling. Dan, I think, was recording from his computer mic instead of the regular mic. And it was just horrible audio. It was funny, though. I should have probably noticed it at least half an hour in, but nope. The, the altcoin stuff, if you listen to us at all, it is pretty deep for us, though, because we, we're in a demographic that we just don't have money to waste, man. I mean, we, we're not rolling in cash. So to own a home and have a couple kids and two cars and money to invest, like you, you just, we don't have a ton of margin. So these mistakes are a bigger deal when you're a fireman than if you're making $500,000 a year as a radiologist, you know? Yeah. So it just, it goes deep for us. And we are really, <laughs> we are really passionate about trying to give people that shortcut straight to the only true investable discovery right now. That's kind of how we have. We're not saying that no other project is going to have any place in the future, but on a risk-adjusted basis, it's just so obvious to us that there's only one sound investable asset at this point in the space. And and buying anything else is like picking pennies up in front of a steamroller. Like, why wouldn't you you yep. buy the, the one of the most profound paradigm shifting discoveries of what you know hundreds to? I mean, even back to crisis, he's saying this is the biggest discovery in a thousand years, and I don't think he's. I don't think he's off base at all. Yeah, I don't either. I, I think we all wish we could be Michael Saylor. You know, leverage up your company, two point one billion in debt, have a business that's cash flowing about five hundred, or have a balance sheet of five hundred million, and then cash flowing fifty million a year. Uh, we'd all love to be in that position, but I definitely feel that uh, not having extra money to invest in or, or very tight budgets. I guess uh, I know we've talked about a lot about uh, books and, and articles throughout the podcast, but I guess what some what are some of your favorite books, podcasts, YouTube channels, or websites that you like to go to for Bitcoin information? I know we talked about Lynn Aldwin and Alex Gladstein, but I'll toss it over to Dan first if you want to go. Yeah, I have to just repeat. I mean, my Lynn Alden's kind of my have to read everything she writes. And the thing I love about her is, I mean, she spends a fraction of her time talking about Bitcoin. But to understand the significance of Bitcoin, you need to have a much deeper understanding of how markets and macro function. And she provides that and she does a marvelous job of making it accessible to people that aren't at her level. You know, she she writes material that, you know, a professional hedge fund manager could resonate with all the way down to somebody that's more of a macro beginner. I think um I mean, Yuval Harari, I'm going to steal a job, but we both like loved like those books, Sapiens, Homo Deus, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Those are, those are his three books. Go beyond Bitcoin. If yeah. all you're reading is Bitcoin stuff, stretch your mind, move beyond finance because- That's, that's where I was going to go actually. So Ray Dalio, probably besides, uh, 
he is probably my favorite investing guy whose books, his books, uh, the, the changing world order. I would highly recommend you read that, especially for what's going on right now. But in the same vein, a lot of big investors love reading about biology. And I went down the rabbit hole a few years, like four or five years ago, where I was like, I need to read more biology books to understand. I mean, it's basically what biology is, is free markets in a completely untethered way. There are, there's no fed in, you know, in the world of biology. So the book I'm going to recommend is totally off the reservation here, but if you haven't read it, it's called The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins. It was written in the 70s. And um, the exploration of how your genes are what you're actually trying to move to the future, not necessarily um, your DNA. So it's it's a very, very in- deep look down into how, like, why are animals, why do animals act the way they do? Why do we see some evidence of animals being not selfish in nature, like just the the motivations of animals in ways that you may not have thought. It's a great book, great read. Read the selfish gene. Dan, Josh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for running into burning buildings and helping people. Uh, if someone wants to learn more about you guys in particular or your podcast, where can they go to find you guys? They can find us on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. Send us an email at uh, blue collar Bitcoin podcast at Gmail. And uh, find us on every uh, podcast app available, Blue Collar Bitcoin. Thanks so much, guys. I think that's a wrap. Uh, like I said, thank you so much for your time. I, I wish we could keep going. This was a, a great rip. I, I definitely could go another hour or two or multiple hours. And I'll catch you guys on next week's episode. Thanks, Chris. Cool. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to like or subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts or on YouTube. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. We are also active on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. And our email address is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We invite questions, comments, or inquiries of any kind. We look forward to you joining us again on the BCB Podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah.